turn your Bibles to Job 40, Job 40 verse 15, and um, this is a continuation of what we looked at last week, talking about what's your greatest fear? What monster frequents your nightmares? What evil lurks beneath your anxieties? We had a little time for you to discuss that last week. I want to share with you the story of a uh, famous New Testament theologian that still is alive today. His name is Ben. And uh, I want to uh, read to you uh, the first paragraph of an article that he wrote. The article is entitled, What Good Grief Looks Like When a Daughter Dies. And it begins with this, The phone rang late Wednesday night near the beginning of the new year, January eleventh, 2012. It was Saragon Sankar, Christie's boyfriend. He was barely intelligible because he was crying so much. He had just been on the phone with the Durham, North Carolina police who had cordoned off Christie's home. The words he spoke were, Christie is gone. She was found dead in the house. Christie had passed away. Christie is Ben and Ann's daughter. She's, she was uh, 33 years old. And uh, as I said, this is a famous New Testament theologian. We're going to talk a little bit more about how he dealt with that. But I want to start with that by saying, boy, that's a, that's, a, that's a parent's worst nightmare, isn't it? You know, you get your kid through the, uh, the growing up years and they're launched into life. She had moved to Carolina away out of the home and starting her life. And, and you're like, okay, shoo, kind of made it that far. And the last thing a parent wants is to bury their own child. That's just not the way it's supposed to go. Uh, I know for Gwen and I, that would certainly be one of our greatest fears, one of our worst nightmares to lose our daughter. I don't know what yours are. Uh, Job has been living his worst nightmare, and yes, it's been a long time. It's been many months. We really don't know how long it's been, but he's lost his health, he's lost his wealth, and he's lost all ten of his children. He's lost the support of his wife, and he's lost the sympathy of his friends. He's been dealing with his worst nightmare, and here in this last, uh, this last uh, words of God to Job, God finally shows up on the ash heap of despair, as you know, and basically God says to Job, you do the math. And we said last week, what's that phrase mean? When someone says do the math, what do they mean by that? Figure it out. Reason it out, add it up, and come to this conclusion. You do the math. And the question is, is God greater than your worst nightmare? You do the math. And so he says to him, basically, here in Job chapter 40, verse 15, Consider capturing Behemoth. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made, as well as you. And he, he just has him look at this. This, this mighty beast, this super beast, this mega monster. And then he says, try taming Leviathan. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? And so we've been doing some math. God says do the math, so we've been doing monster math. And we're seeing three facts. And last week we saw the first fact, and we're going to try to get to the last two today. And the first one last week was this. Monster math is simple, but it's perplexing. Monster math is simple enough to understand, but it's still perplexing. And there in your notes in that box, I gave you a simple mathematical equation. And this is what God is arguing with these two 
mysterious, mighty, monstrous creatures of Behemoth and Leviathan. And it's real simple. Behemoth plus Leviathan is greater than Job. That's the greater sign. Okay? Real simple math. But Behemoth plus Leviathan is less than God. Real simple math. But when you put those together, it says Job is less than God. And that's been Job's problem. He has thought he was greater than God in his wisdom, greater than God in his understanding, greater than God in his compassion. We all get that way in our suffering, don't we? We look at our pain and we say, you know what, God, I think I could help you tweak it here. I think you could lighten up over here and you seem to have let this get out of control. And then we pray that way. But in reality, Job needs to learn a lesson. I'm less than God. And so down there, we, we said uh, to try to understand what is or who is behemoth and Leviathan, we saw that there's a literal meaning of super beast, mega monster for behemoth. And Leviathan is a writhing, wreathing, coiling sea monster. And we looked at these three options. Are these monster animals, real animals, but maybe... You know, maybe mighty animals like a dinosaur, as great as a dinosaur, or simply the hippo and crocodile. Are they mythological gods because people would worship these gods, worship um, powers greater than us? We tend to want to worship and make idols out of so that we can manipulate and control them. Or ultimately, is God not coming right out and saying it, but saying, look, Job, the issue is this. There's a greater evil behind all this. There's the devil, and yet I, I'm in control. And so is he really talking about the power of the death, death and the pride of the devil? It all really comes down to this, and here's what I, I, I think it's all three. And we went through that last week. You can listen to the lesson online. Can you control the power of death? Can you conquer the pride of the devil? So what I want to do for a few minutes here is show you a video I put together to kind of just give you the visual impact because we this is poetry, right? And I just want you to kind of review from last week and uh, to add a little humor to it since we're uh, uh, doing monster uh, math. I, I think you can grasp the, uh, the humor. Here we have. Looking in the lab late one night, when my eyes beheld an eerie sight, for my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the match. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It caught on in a flash. He did the match. He did the monster match. From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abode To get a jolt from my electrode They did the match They did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash They did the match It caught on in a flash They did the match they did the monster match. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, back by his baying hounds. The coffin baggers were about to arrive with their vocal group. 
the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the match. They played the Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It got on in a flash. They played the match. They played the Monster Mash. Out from his coffin, Rex's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, "Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist?" It's now the match. It's now the Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the match. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the match. It's now the Monster Mash. Now everything's cool. Drax's a part of the band, and my Monster Mash is the hit of the land. For you, the living, this mash was meant to. When you get to my door, tell them what is said. Then you can mash. Then you can Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. And you, my graveyard smash. Then you can mash. You'll catch on in a flash. Then you can mash. Then you can Monster Mash. monster math but monster mash but you get the idea those are all the kind of images those are still out there they still communicate uh evil and, and that's the idea that's why the lord is using these not only real animals i believe whether it's a hippo or a dinosaur and you saw some of those um some of those uh, skeleton fossil figures there are there were humongous frightening creatures so that when you say something sounds like a crocodile but you're looking at that one skeleton that's like you know hanging and it's it's bigger than you know longer and bigger than three men so there's some tremendous things but in the end i really believe that behind all that and we know this from job one and two it stands the devil and so the first fact regarding monster math that we looked at last week was this nothing nothing we face or fear is greater than the majesty, the might, and the mercy of our God. And that's what he wants us to, first of all, understand. God is greater than the combination of everything. Whether it's, it's uh, demons, whether it's earthly things that you're facing, whatever it is you're facing, there's nothing greater. So, let's look at the second fact about facing our greatest fears, and that's where we want to be today, and it's this. Monster math is simple, but it's profound. It's simple, but it is profound. The most important thing that we want to learn from Job 40, 15 on about Behemoth and Leviathan is not so much what they are as what God wants us to learn about them. Are you with me? If God wanted us to clearly understand what they were, He would have made it clear. He's kind of made it a mystery. It's perplexing. But the truth is profound, and it's this. Because hidden, listen to me now, hidden in the description 
of these mighty creatures. In fact, you know, we read it last week. I'm not teaching you through. You can read the description about their tail, their strength, their, their eating habits, their habitats. You can, you can, you know, I don't, you can read that. But in the midst of those descriptions are these three profound facts about everything we face or fear. And so I want you to get this. Here's the profound truth. Everything we face or fear is, number one, created by God. It's created by God. That's what he wants us to see. Why do I say that? Because the very first statement about behemoth in verse 15, this this super beast, this mighty monster in verse 15, the very first truth he wants us to understand is this. Verse 15, behold now behemoth, which I made as well as you. Job, you're created and accountable to me. Take the mightiest creature, demonic, physical, otherwise. Take your worst nightmare, and I, I created that being. I created that fear. I created that threat. It's created by God. And then look at Leviathan in, in, in chapter 41, verse 33. In chapter 41, verse 33. So you got the very first sentence about behemoth, and the very next to last sentence about Leviathan is verse 33 of chapter 41. It says this, Nothing on earth is like him. Whoa, that's scary. He's mighty. He's great. Nothing on earth is like him. But then he says, One made without fear. Oh, he might be mighty, but I made him mighty. I am greater than him. So, so what? What's the point of that? What's the big deal about that? Well, let me give you a couple truths. First of all, nothing we face is equal to God or can hold God hostage or can go toe-to-toe with God. That's good news. Whatever you're fearing or whatever you, you are facing is not equal to God. I say, why is that important? Because the vast majority of our culture believes there's a yin and a yang. There's a good and there's an evil, and they're equal. And they're always battling it out, and we're just kind of at their mercy, and we're sitting and saying, gee, I hope the good guy wins. Right? We get it in the cartoons, the little demon figure and the little angelic figure, and we're just kind of in the middle, and everything's equal. Listen, God, there's nothing on in this universe that you can see or unseen that is equal to God. Every evil that you face was ultimately is ultimately less than God. God created it all. He is supreme. He's second to none. He always has been. He always will be. There's nothing we face or fear that can beat God in an arm wrestling contest. There's nothing we face or fear that God has to first defeat in order to be God. You've got to understand, some of these mythological gods, the reason they're, they become gods is because they beat up and, 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 and they have wrestling matches and boxing matches and, 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 and they beat the other god, therefore I get to be God. Hey, God didn't have to beat anybody up to become God. He is God, He was God, and He always will be God. And He's God in the, in the midst of your fears. Now, let me be quick to say, this does not mean that God originally created evil or directly caused evil to exist. But it does mean that all things that have become evil, whether it's the devil, the demons, or Adam and Eve, were created beings that are still accountable to their Creator. Did you catch what I said? 
God has created all things, but He did not create anything evil in the beginning. God looked on creation and what did He say? It was good. And He looked at it again and He said, it's good. And in fact, six times. And He says, it's good. It's very good. God created. I mean, go to the ultimate source of evil, the devil. He was created good. So God created all things, even that evil that exists, but He didn't create it evil, and He didn't directly cause it to become evil. And yet the good news is, because it's created, it's accountable to Him. Now you say, what's the big deal about that? Well, we saw this in Job 1 and 2. When the sons of God, both good angels and, I believe, the devil as the accuser, the adversary, came to stand before God to give an account for themselves. Turn back to Job 1 uh, Job chapter 1, let's, let's just, we're, we're tying the whole book together now. We've made it this far. Let's, let's see the lessons to be learned. In Job 1, 6, we see that the adversary, the devil, who is the one that wants to destroy Job, the one that wants to uh, shame and deface the glory of God, is himself accountable to God. Look at Job 1, 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. In other words, they had to come and give an account of themselves before the king, before their creator. And Satan also came among them. Why? Because though he is evil, though he has rebelled, though he is the prince of this earth, he is still accountable for all that he does. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Why? Not because he needed information, not because he was confused. He said, look, I want to know, you've got to give an account of what you've been doing. And then Satan answered to the Lord, I've been roaming about on the earth and walking around it, which means uh, 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 a predator stalking his prey. Same thing happens again in Job 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day. Now look at Job 2, verse 1. Same idea, but a little more emphatic. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. See, after having unleashed the first wave of destruction upon Job and the loss of his wealth and his kids, the Bible is emphasizing to us, though that happened, and though on earth it seems like all things are out of control, Satan has to come and give an accounting of what he has done, to make sure he has done it, it has not gone uh, beyond what the Lord has permitted him to do. He had to present himself before the Lord. So, whatever you face, whatever you fear facing, it's all been created by God, and it's all accountable to Him. Second profound fact is this, everything we face or fear is controlled by God. Okay, it's created, he didn't create it evil, it became evil, so now is it out of control? No, it's controlled by God. Look again at Job 40, verse 24. So turn back to Job 40. Now we're looking at the last thing said about Behemoth. In Job 40, 24, the first thing said about him, he's created. The last thing said about Behemoth is this. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch with barbs can anyone pierce his nose? And the answer to that, the, to that rhetorical question is no. Nobody can do that. But the implied answer is, who can? God. Why? Because He created it. And if He created it, He can control it. When 
evil came into existence and when Satan rebelled, when Adam and Eve sinned, God was not on His throne wringing His hands saying, Oh, what am I going to do now? I didn't see that coming. He's not up there saying, "Uh Uh-oh, plan B. Attention, plan B is now in effect. Why? Because he's in control. He is in control. He can control your... He's in control of your greatest fear and whatever you're facing, he is in control. You're not. I'm not. But he is. And we have a tendency to project onto God and make Him into our image. So if I'm out of control, then what, does that must, what, what, what must that mean about God? Well, He's out of control. Because after all, He's not smarter than me. He's not more compassionate. I mean, I, I got this all under control. You know, I mean, I, I, I thought I had this under control. And now that I realize I don't, He must not either. Now, come on now. Come on. And if you haven't been to that place, I'm thankful that you haven't because you haven't really suffered. But what I can't guarantee you is that you won't get to that place. And what we're trying to do here with Job and what we're trying to do here this morning is to prepare you for that time that is coming when you face that which is totally out of your control. It scares you to death because it potentially is death or a living kind of death, right? And you need to understand that God is in control. Now, what about Leviathan? We see the same thing, especially in Leviathan. Because I believe Leviathan ultimately is symbolic of the devil himself, there's much more about Leviathan. Let's look at chapter 41, and let's look at verses 1 through 10. I want you to especially look at, right after saying in, in, in 40... Chapter 40, verse 24, that he can control and capture behemoth. Here's the next thing. he First thing he introduces about Leviathan is in verse 1. Chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? In other words, look, you can't control either one of these mighty monsters, these super beasts, these man's worst fear on the planet, but I can I can. And then notice what he says. Can you, verse 2, put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaws? Will he make supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you bind him? For your maidens, in other words, can you tame Leviathan? Can you make a domestic pet and, a, and, and treat him like a little uh, pet puppy? And you know what the beautiful truth of that is? I can. I can take the devil and I can hook him, capture him, control him, and I have the power to reduce him to nothing more than a mere pet on a leash. And that's good news that the greatest evil that we face is on a leash. And that leash is in the hands of God. And then he says, Will the traders bargain over him? In verse 6, Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Just try to do this, Job, and remember the battle. You will not do it again. We talked about that last week. Parents saying, Go ahead. You won't ever do that again. 
Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one now look at verse 10. Now here's here, here's the profound truth. Look at verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Wow, look at verse 10. There's the theological, there's the truth. There's where he's saying, look, I'm in control. What he's saying is, I have presented to you, Job, your greatest fear in the physical realm. You're experiencing your worst nightmare in your own life. And I'm just trying to tell you that you can't stand before this stuff. But then who then is he that can stand before me? So if you can't face your worst fears, then why are you putting me on trial, Job? Why do you think I'm out of, this is out of my control when I'm so much greater than you and your worst nightmare? So what? What's that mean, Chris? What's that mean? It's all in God's control. Easy to say, but what's it mean? Well, it means this, that nothing we face is so powerful that it's ever out of His control. Nothing you face is so powerful. Now, I'm telling you, that is good news. We like to reduce control to solution. We like to reduce control to curing my cancer. We want control to mean solving my problem. We want control to mean eliminating my conflict. Well, that may be what we want, but it's often not what we need. And we have seen that God is infinitely more wiser and He is totally more compassionate than what we can understand. And the evil we face or fear is not so powerful or so evil that God is up there wringing His hands in heaven and powerless to do anything about it. And let's just... What, 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 what God wants graciously, wants Job to understand is life is always out of our control. Always. Yeah, but I had a good week this week. Duns went on vacation. You plan it, you're in control of it. I assume everything went well. Great week. But you know what? Last week was out of their control. Just as last week was out of my control. Just as today is out of my control. I'm not in control. But we have that false perception, don't we? The reality is, life's always out of control. And then when God allows us to be reminded of that by something bad happening to us, that's not like a vacation, that's not pleasant. He wants us to remind us he's still in control. He's still in control. We may not know what the future may hold, but we do know who holds the future. It's a cliche that's powerfully true. And it's what Job is trying to say. You don't know who, what the future holds, but you do know me and I hold the future. Our God is in control. Now, we saw this. In Job 1 and 2. So again, I want to take you back to Job 1 and 2. So look at Job 1 again. Look at Job 1 again. We know this, that God is in control, even when life is out of control. Even when evil is unleashed into our lives, we know God is in control because of Job 1, 8 through 12. Look in your Bibles at Job 1, 8 through 12. God initiates... What led to Job's suffering? Hard to say. Hard truth to grasp. But it's right there in your Bible. I cannot deny it. God initiated the horrible events that led 
to Job's suffering. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him. Look, this guy's blameless. He loves me. He fears me. He turns away from evil. And then Satan answered, Does Job fear God for nothing? He, 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 he slanders Job. He attacks God. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your, your hand. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now see verse 12. It's so critical. The accuser who wants to do evil says to God who is good and always does what is ultimately good, you put your hand out and you do evil. What does God say? Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, which is literally the same word, your hand. So Satan says, you reach out your hand, and he says, no, he's in your hand. He's in your power only... Do not put forth your hand on him. Same word, hand, power. Don't put your hand on him. In other words, you have power to take everything away, except you can't touch him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Same thing happens in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Again, God initiates the events that will eventually lead to Job's suffering. For there's no one like him on earth. He's blameless. He fears me. He turns away from evil. Yeah, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, we've already taught on that. You can go back and see that. But that's the tension right there is in that verse that I'm talking about. God is in control, and yet God is not causing the evil. And then he says to him, However, put forth your hand, oh, and, and Satan says, skin for skin, yes, all that he has a man will give. However, put forth your hand. He wants to blame God. He wants to lay it at God's feet. Touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. He's in your hand. Only spare his life. What you want to see is God's in control of the events as they played out. And yet he's not the one doing the evil. Are you with me? God's teaching Job these same... Now, now here's, the, here, here's what I'm trying to do. Is God is teaching Job the truth of Job 1 and 2 without telling him what's actually happening. Are you with me? By using Behemoth and a lot Leviathan, by allowing Job to uh, uh, imagine his worst fears and face his worst nightmares, he is subtly telling Job the same truth that you and I know because we read Job 1 and 2, but Job will never know. Now, if you're tracking with me, which would be a miracle, but if you're tracking with me, then there should be a logical question coming to your mind. And the question is there, and let's not dodge it, let's deal with it. Number one, or not number one, but here's the question. If God is in control, Chris, like you're saying, and like it appears in Job, if God is in control, then why did he allow evil to exist? And why does he let the devil have such a long leash? Logical question. Ultimately, the question you're going to come to, faced with these truths, and it's not a... It can be a philosophical, abstract question, but not when you're facing your nightmare. Not when it's your daughter at 33 who has died. Then it's not philosophical. Then it's heart-wrenching. 
but it's still this question. Now, immediately, what is similar about these two questions? What word do they begin with? Okay, if, you've, if I've done my job, if the Holy Spirit's been at work, you've learned this far, are those the right questions to ask? No. Okay, you're not going to get direct answers, but there are answers. And they are logical and practical questions. So let me give you five biblical answers uh, to that question. Why did he allow evil to exist and why does he let the devil... And this is where I might have Mike come up and help me out a little bit here in a minute. So, number one, God has already led Job to stop asking such questions. God has already led Job to stop asking such questions with a first with a partial answer at the in his first interrogation. Remember, God led him through the ten animals. He led him through his zoo of animals and said, "Look, I I have not I not only created these animals, I control these animals and I care for these animals." And Job at the end of that said, "Okay, I'm done asking why questions. I don't ask those questions anymore." And what was the partial answer? Listen to me, the partial answer to why does God allow evil to exist? And why is he giving the devil this leash that I think should be two feet long and it's gotten five feet long and it's touching me, this dog's biting me where he shouldn't be biting me? The partial answer is this. God's wisdom is greater than we can ever understand. And God's compassion is greater than we can ever realize. Those were. I'm not going to reteach the first lesson in God's interrogation, but that was the answer he gave. And let me tell you, for Job, who feared God, that, w- that answer was sufficient. Why is God allowing this evil nightmare to exist in my life? And God's partial answer is, my wisdom is greater than yours. I could, you wouldn't understand it if I explained it, but I've got it under control. His second answer is, my compassion for you is greater than you can ever realize. I care. I care about what you're going through. I am not doing this as a heartless, distant Islamic God that is up there way distant. I am compassionate and I care. My compassion is greater than you realize. And guess what? That was sufficient for Job. Job said, I put my hand on my mouth. I have nothing more to say. So God has already led Job to stop asking such questions. The, uh, let me go back to the famous theologian and a, who's also a grieving dad, which goes to show you it's, uh, you can have a terrific amount of Bible knowledge, but when you face suffering, you can still come up with the wrong answer. Okay? He said... Was in answer to the question, was this God's will regarding the death of his daughter? He says, I do not believe in God's detailed control of all events. I feel for somebody that says that, but I understand where it's coming from. It's this hard question. I do not believe in God's detailed control of all events. Why first... In, in, First, because I find it impossible to believe that I am more merciful or compassionate than God. See, that is exactly what God has been teaching Job. 
in his suffering. And that's exactly where we get it wrong. We make God in our image. And when we face hard times, our first thought is, if I were God, I wouldn't be, what? Letting this happen. Are you with me? I'm compassionate, and I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. I'm loving, and I wouldn't do this to... Therefore, God is love, and, and so he's... I can't be more loving than... So he, he, he can't have any part of this. Wow, do you realize what you just did there? You're now facing your worst fear, and God is not in control. The loving God, this compassionate God that you say is so loving and compassionate that you couldn't be more loving, He's not in control. What does that leave you? Not in a good place. Number two. God is going to now give Job a final answer to this question. God is now going to give Job a final answer to this question. What question? Why do you allow evil to exist? And why don't you uh, reel in the devil when he's unleashing his, his wickedness and his causing such suffering and death? Well, here's the answer. Here's God's final answer, remember? And that's my final answer. This is God's final answer. Look at Job 41, 10 through 11. When we come to God with these kind of questions about evil, here's what he says. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. In other words, your evil is great. But then he says in verse 10, Who then is he that can stand before me? I've got this under control. Who are you to question what I am doing? And then he says in verse 11, In case you doubt that this is what God's saying, he makes it very clear in verse 11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. In other words, I own everything. No one, no one, um, I, I own everything and I owe no one anything. Trying to get it out. What's he saying in verse 11? Look at I own everything. And I owe no one anything. And if God doesn't owe anyone anything, that includes answers to such questions. Who can stand before me, Job? Who can stand before me and tell me they know better what I ought to be doing in this planet or with your life? And God's saying, Job, I created it all. I own it all. It's all accountable to me. I'm in control of it all. And with compassion, he's saying to Job, I don't owe you an explanation. Now, we get this with our own kids, don't we? When our kids press us, and we're doing right by our kids, and we lay down the law, or we say we're going to the doctor to get shots. But why? You know, I, I don't want to go through this pain. I don't want, and, 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 and sometimes we, we just say, look, you just, need to, you just need to do what I'm saying. And really, in really difficult situations with our kids, if our kids are out in the street and they're about to get run over, we don't have time for why questions. You just got to trust me and do what I'm saying. And you will see in the end that I've got it under control and I do care. I mean, we're right now in that teenage years, and believe me, I find great comfort in give it a decade and she'll understand. Is that true, 
Two decades? Okay, two decades. Give it two decades, and she'll understand why no was said, why this was given, why this was enforced. Give it a couple decades. We'll give it maybe our entire lives, and we come before God, and He reveals Himself. We might understand, God... You had it all in control, and you didn't have to explain it to me. Number three, the Apostle Paul gives the same answer to those questions. The Apostle Paul gives the same answer to these questions, uh, to those who question God's sovereign justice in condemning deserving sinners while showing mercy to some undeserving sinners. Because the ultimate issue in life is this, why does God save some and not all? And that question was raised when we did our study of Romans 9 through 11. And here's the wonderful, wild, woolly thing. In Romans 11, Paul gives his ultimate answer and he quotes Job 40, 10 through 11. Why? Because both questions. God, why are you allowing me to suffer? Job, asking that thousands of years. And us asking today, why are some saved and others lost? It's all about God's justice, and the answer is the same. So let me turn to your Bibles, Romans 11, 33 through 35. Romans 11, 33 through 35. Paul gives, so what I'm trying to say to you is my understanding of Job is backed up by the New Testament when it quotes the same passage in Job. Look at Romans 11 through 35. Paul comes to the end of this great three chapters that are mind-blowing, and we took as long as we were taking with Job to go through. And the question is this. Here's the final, kind of God's final answer. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. There's, there's God's initial answer again. My wisdom is greater than yours and my compassion is... It's the same theme. Okay, And then he says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can become his counselor, or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? That is quoting directly from Job 40, verse 10. And then here's the kicker. Verse, here's the final answer. Here's why does God allow evil to exist? Why does he let the devil have such a long leash? Romans 11, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Ultimately, God knows it will bring him glory and it will be for our good in the end and we have to trust that is the answer. Is that an explanation? No. Is that sufficient for our trust? Yes. Is that a comfort to the one who fears God? Yes, it is. But it doesn't change the pain. It doesn't provide the cure to cancer. It doesn't eliminate the heartbreak of a divorce. It doesn't change the consequences of sin. But it does bring hope and comfort. Number four, both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul say that we as clay have no right to question what the potter does with the clay he created and controls. Number four, both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul say that we as the clay have no right to question what the potter does with the clay he created and controls. That answer, too, is found in Romans 9, where Paul quotes Isaiah. And here's what he says in Romans 9, 19. 
and, and, and this is very similar to these questions we're asking. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? Look, if God's in this much control, even over the evil that's happening, then why does he hold me accountable to trust him? Why Aren't I a puppet? Aren't I a robot? That's the classic arguments. If God's this... We can't let God be this sovereign, which is really a funny statement. I refuse to believe God's this sovereign. Hey, if he's that sovereign, it doesn't matter what you believe. Okay? And, and, and from the, my reading of the Bible, he is that sovereign. So again, the logical question, the question of the fallen flesh that wants to resist, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary... Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Does that not echo with Job? Is that not what God's been saying to Job all along? Who is the fault finder that wants to argue with me? Who is blaming me? Who is answering back to me? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, God's revealing His glory through what He's doing, endured with much patience. God is compassionate. He's patient. Vessels of wrath. It's a wonder He didn't kill Job on the spot for what Job was saying to Him which was wrong, so wrong of what, what Job was saying. Prepare for destruction, and he did so to make known. There's the idea, I'm revealing my glory, the riches of his glory, upon vessels of mer- mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God's purposes are glorious. God's power is great. Even us, whom he also called, not only from Gentile, uh, Jews only, but also from Gentiles. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, look. I can't explain all that. And I can't explain how that relates totally to your suffering. All I know is these are the answers that God gives. And here's number five. The suffering servant Job finally sees the light and agrees. Now, see, you can say, I don't agree with you, Chris. And that's okay. But Job agreed with God when God said it. Look at Job 42. Look at Job 42, one through, and next week we'll look at this in detail. But here's the answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. I think that's an affirmation of his sovereignty, don't you? And is it a partial sovereignty? No, it's a... Look, you can do... uh, Okay, I didn't think you could figure this out, God, but now I know you can. I didn't think you were fully in control, God. Now I know that you are. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job knew that God's purposes were glorious and gracious and merciful. But when he entered into suffering, he began to question that just like you and I do. And God met him in his suffering and said, Job, I'm still in control. My purposes are still good. You've got to trust me. And then he goes on. And then he look at verse 6. 5 and 6. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, he now gets it. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Listen, the devil 
is powerful. He's like a fire-breathing dragon seeking to overthrow God and destroy us as God's people. But our God is in control. Like Joseph, we can say, you meant it for evil, but you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in the saving of life. Like Job, we can say, the Lord gave and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can say like Paul, God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His gracious saving purposes. Like Jesus in the garden, we can say, not my will, but yours be done. The sad thing about my theologian, uh, the famous theologian, was when he addressed this issue in his article, he said this. He said, first, I find it impossible to think God would be more merciful and compassionate than me, so he can't have anything to do with this. Second, because the biblical portrait shows that God is pure love and, and pure light and holy love, in him there's no darkness, nothing other than light and love. In other words, God's love, and he would never do anything that would control evil so as to a, accomplish good. I, guess, I don't know. Third, he says this, the words the Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away from the lips of Job are not good theology. And, it's, and the reason he says that, he says Job said that in chapter 2, 1 and 2, when he didn't really know. And now here at the end, he knows that Satan is really behind it. In other words, Job, I guess, is retracting and taking back what he initially said. I don't know what his... Un My point is... When you take God out of the equation and He no longer has created everything, controls everything, and as the third point is, conquers everything, then you begin to diminish God and you begin to misunderstand the book of Job. Everything we face or fear is conquered ultimately by God. Go back there to Job, the end of Job 41. Look at the end of Job 41. Look at the last thing he says about Leviathan. Job 41, verse 34. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Now, if you compare that back here at the beginning of God's second speech to Job 40, verses 6 through 14, where God says, look, you be the judge, Job. He says, can you look on the, pr the proud and just bring them down with a look? What he's saying to Job is, look, what you're facing is the greatest power, the greatest evil that the, you, that's in the universe. I can merely look and speak and take them out. In fact, he says in the middle of the description of Leviathan that only God with his sword can bring him down. And we know that that's true. So what's the second truth? Monster mass, math teaches us everything we face or fear is created, controlled, and conquered by our God. Nothing we face is greater, and everything we face is created, controlled, and conquered by our God. And that ends with this. Monster math is simple, but practical. And the practical response is what we'll study next week. Job's response was not to say, oh, Satan did it, that makes it all okay. No, he says to God, nothing you do can be thwarted. You can do all things. I'm just going to trust you. It doesn't matter who did it, whether the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the devil, Mot, Yam, Rahab, Mithil. It doesn't matter. You can do all things. So here's what Monster Math teaches us. Everyone should fear the Lord more than their greatest fears in life and death. Everyone should fear the Lord. 
So monster math is real. It's perplexing. It's profound, but practical. And it comes down to this. Nothing you will ever face or you presently fear is greater than our God. Can we say amen? Number two, everything we face or fear has been created, is controlled, and will be one day conquered by God. Can we say amen? Therefore, everyone should fear the Lord more than your greatest fear. Amen? And we'll talk about how that response plays out next week. But we can trust our God. And we may look again at uh, Ben's response there and just talk a little bit more about this uh, understanding. Uh, because this man's, this man's not dumb, and this man is godly. And there's different views of how God's sovereignty works in suffering. I respect that, I understand that, and I certainly respect and honor a man who's grieving the loss of his daughter. But the reality is there are answers. And our God can be trusted. So I don't know. Some of you are going through some trials that no one really knows about. Or maybe only a few people. You need to take these three truths. And, and weep over them. And pray over them. And trust and know that we have a God who is greater. Amen? He is just greater. Don't diminish Him. Exalt Him. And trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we come. This is not easy stuff because you're not a a, a God that is easily understood. You are mighty, and yet you're merciful. You're in control, and yet sometimes we question that. And yet, God, we don't want to abandon you. We We want to be Joe. We want to persevere. We want to struggle. We want to keep interacting with you. We don't want to to bring you down to our level. We want to let our faith Stretch us to your greatness. I pray for those that are hurting right now that have situations that it seems the devil has too long of leash, whose worst nightmares are a living reality. And I pray, O oh Father, that you, by your Spirit, would take these truths that are beyond my comprehension, beyond all of our comprehension, but drive the truth home and reveal yourself to be the awesome God that you are. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.